The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous law and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast Edinburgh Festival Fringe Series 2022. Today Louise and I chat with the incredible Livia Kojo Allure. Livia is a spoken word poet, writer, vocalist, a sword swallower and just the most inspiring human. And um, I can't wait for everybody to hear this episode and hear about um, her show, Black Sheep, and um, to also hear about her life. Just brilliant. And I'm so looking forward to seeing this show. I hope that you're all surviving the festival, making sure that you're looking after yourselves. Um, Try and maybe eat a vegetable or some fruit every few days and make sure that you are keeping your water intake up. Get a good comfy pair of shoes on and enjoy the ride of the festival. If you would like to be a guest on this series of the podcast, then please email us. I don't know who else you would email. Email us at persistentnasty at gmail.com. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at persistentnasty, Instagram at persistentandnasty, Facebook persistentandnasty. And I've just told you the email address. You can also follow Louise and I. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Instagram and Twitter. And I am at Elaine.Stirrit on Instagram and at ElaineStirrit on Twitter. For today's episode, okay, have whatever you damn well please, I say. But um, maybe a glass of something sparkling, you know, if you're fancy. We Prosecco, champagne if you can, but you can always just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Um, it is brilliant to be here today. Uh, lovely listeners, we are joined by an amazing guest, and you also have Louise and I, which yeah, is really yay, which is lovely. Um, Louise, I'm going to pass over to you, and you can do. Do the intro, my love. How very exciting. I was um as listeners who might know if this is going in chronological order in terms of release, I was doing it by myself with the guests. And I have to confess, Elaine is the superior host. Without her by my side, I was very I was very anxious. I, I realized in that moment just how much of a rock you are from for me, Elaine. So I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Aww. Um, so this is uh, another one of our um, podcasts going out as part of our fringe season, and we have an incredible guest with us today. Uh, we have the amazing Livia Kojo Allure, and she has a show at the festival called Black Sheep. But when we will talk about that, but Livia also has this incredible career. Um, I am so excited that Olivia is with us today because I think you're going to really love this chat. Um, I, I can't wait to get started. So I, I would just pass over to you, Olivia, to say hello to our guests. 
Yes, hello everyone. Um, super, thank you, Louise and Elaine. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. Fire the questions at me. <laughs> well, I mean, I was reading the press release and there's some information that your uh, publicist sent over and I don't even know where to start. It's just such an incredible life and career that uh, you've had. So I guess starting at the beginning is always useful. For our listeners who might not be familiar with your work already, can you give us a little potted history? Can you tell us and our listeners who you are? Sure. So um, what to say? I think I'm best known as a, sword, as a sword swallower at this point in my career. I'm one of four or five black sword swallowers and um, one of 50 active female sword swallowers known in the world at the moment. So don't quote me on it 100%. We never quite know. But yeah, this is, I guess, my my tag around my neck at the moment. <laughs> um, but I've done lots of other things. I actually, I used to be a stripper for a very, very long time. So in, in 1999, I started stripping and I had a long and uh, fruitful career. And I also stripped in Edinburgh sometimes. There was a small little club, um, very, very <laughs> tiny. It was really small that's what I remember on the pubic triangle you said I'm allowed to swear so I'm just yes, using this you word. absolutely are absolutely. and the thing is anybody who's been to Edinburgh will know exactly where you mean yeah the pubic really everybody knows it <laughs> it's such a great it's such a great name um yeah so yeah so so my original career as a stripper took me around the world several times and um I at some point I came across uh, featured performers and I always like I always had this dream to be on stage as in a performer performance artist theater production that was something I was like want something that I wanted since I was 14 years old really but you know I didn't quite get there and ended up as a stripper it sounds a little bit it was it wasn't quite like that because it was actually quite fun but you know this was like the natural progression of things and um, I came across featured performers and featured and got a featured performer slot and started making an act that could be just shown as a you know as a sexy performance and somehow from yeah this was like the ignition in really pursuing a career in the arts I was I was uh, living in Germany at that point and I just decided to sell everything and move to London to become a professional performer 13 years later here we are <laughs> I love it. Um, I wanted to just touch on something that you said there. Um, sorry, I was also keeping myself on mute because um, we're staying at my sister-in-law's and um, my husband's just decided to start putting the coffee machine on. And I'm like, right. dude, <laughs> really? Really? You know I'm podcasting. Um, anyway, back to you said something about you, um, like you ended up being a stripper and like that kind of sense of, and I'm really interested in that idea of how society places judgment on that and how actually the way you're speaking about it sounds really freeing and fun and I would love to have a little bit of a chat about that if you're all right with that. Absolutely so I pursued getting into higher education in the performing arts so I applied in about oh maybe I applied about 10 times and five different schools around Europe. I was, I'm German, so I was living in Germany and we have, we used to have amazingly government-funded 
performing arts schools and dance you schools. You absolutely did. Um, you, I was so jealous of Germany. <laughs> yeah. So I applied at several schools in Germany and in Holland and I was uh, refused for, you know, I think three years I tried. And um, I remember the last time I applied to a school, the school, the school of new dance development in Amsterdam, shame on you. The principal of the school actually told me after the audition that I don't need to audition again because they can't see me as a, you know, as a, um, you know, performer, as a strong performer. They don't think I have it in me. So they actually told me to stay the F away. And that really shattered my, my, you know, my confidence. And it's also been a time where these schools were run and visited by 98% white people. It was extremely privileged, mainly people from like children, young young performers or wanting, you know, dancers from privileged backgrounds, even though the school is free to admission, it's still, you know, it was in the early 90s, there was a different idea around the arts, it's still kind of a, a problem, but it's maybe not as, not as much anymore as it used to be. So I was, I remember that year when I got turned away and she told me to never come back, it was um, two performers of color applied one was from New York um, a lovely black woman and she got um, she was amazing but she got offered a six-week sponsor scholarship type thing so she was allowed to come and study in the summer and that was the only person of color in, in the whole you know in, in the whole year basically so I guess I got so disappointed and also just you know I didn't see any chance for me to get into a school that I then uh, started to become a yoga teacher. And uh, I moved to Bangkok, actually out of all places. <laughs> and I was, um, yeah, so I, I, I taught yoga in Bangkok in a, really, in a really cool yoga school, actually. And it was in Shilom. It's directly, so people who, who listen, who know Bangkok a little bit, there is a, there is a part in Bangkok called Pat Pong where all the, you know, all the ping pong shows and all the sex shows happening. And I met this American guy from New York and he was like, I just opened this amazing yoga school. It's on top of a sexy bar. And we literally had like, we had the market outside. You, could, you had to go through the markets and all the vendors who were trying to like sell you anything available on earth. And then, you know, you pass by the ping pong entrance from before the, where the girls were sitting on the bar pushing ping pongs out of their bodies. And then we would go upstairs and everybody would practice yoga. It was a beautiful school. But I had to find a side hustle because living in Bangkok, the, you know, it just didn't add up. I mean, making, it's like, I don't know, I made like $10, $10 or something. And I was teaching in the fitness center as well. But so I went to Japan and became a stripper there just out of, you know, making ends meet. And I was before our credit system collapsed. So the money was good. So I could work four months and take six months off. Yeah, this is how I got there. Wow. <laughs> like just, I mean, even just the, so many things in that, Livia, <laughs> about, you know, and I, I know Louise will think the problems that drama school causes and the pain and the trauma that they leave behind and, it's definitely not just in Germany and Holland, like it's in the UK, I think it's probably worldwide. There's such an elitist attitude within it. Um, yeah. So everything that you're kind of saying resonates a lot, <clears throat> I think probably for <clears throat> those of us who are 30 and above, maybe, <laughs> um, because it's that that time period. Um, also, yeah. shame, shame on 
uh, absolute shame shame indeed and i think it's uh i think a lot of people nowadays are coming around to the idea that i mean training at a drama school is not the only way to enter the industry as you know as we all know but it's sold to us as this like this is what this is what will legitimize you but I know from my personal experience, and Elaine uh, will probably agree with me, is that you end up uh, you end up you're in a period of recovery when you come out of drama school because they they break you, and they instill these really toxic ideas about what you need to be to fit, and it's um you you spend a lot of your time unpacking that until you become the person you you're meant to be. It's it's not necessarily the best avenue. Uh, to go through to discover yourself as an artist I would argue yeah I, I agree I mean there are you know there are lots of lots of people in my closer circle of acquaintances around um, within the industry and um, I have I have friends who are actually went went the classic way and I have a lot of self-made artists because you know we kind of <laughs> we we stick together we find each other every time I go into a contract with circus work and I have mainly you know, circus performer who come from a school, we just don't have, and we don't have anything to say to each other. It's just like, it's, I'm also usually 10 or 15 years older than everybody else. So that's another thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it, that it went the way it went. But um, you always question yourself, how would have been, how would have been panned out? How would, how, how would this pan out or have panned out, sorry, um, if I gotten into the school? But then at this point, now I'm retiring from all the circus and stuff, hopefully soon, and be a writer. So now I don't really care anymore. I just write books about all the things people said and done to me. <laughs> so you were a stripper in Japan, and then you became a sword swallower circus artist. And the path to that, I'm sure, was just as exciting as everything else in uh, your life. Because, you know, I love that you just moved to Bangkok and then we're like, cool, I'm going to go move to Japan. I, I, I love that free spirit. Um, and now, obviously, you are a performer, writer, and you've got, is your first show at the Edinburgh Festival? So, yeah, it's my first show. It's my first solo show. I've been coming solo to show. the French since, I think I've been to the French the first time performing 2013. And I think I came all the way through till 17 every year with different, in different people's shows. And um, then I had a contract uh, elsewhere. So I went to the Adelaide Fringe, uh, to Perth Fringe. But uh, yeah, so this is the first time, of, of course, pandemic. So this is the first time back after several years now. So I'm really excited. Yeah. I think the Fringe is... Um... It's, it's brilliant and it's wonderful and it's exciting. But I do think when you do it year on year on year, you do need a break because it is just like, it's so, it takes over your life that I think that sometimes like a little break is really great. So the fact that we're just coming back as much as obviously I missed it, um, but the kind of two years of, although there was festival last year, but not to its usual kind of level. Um, I think this year is going to be so exciting. And just, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so tell us about your show. Yes. So I think there's, there's a small thing that I would like to say, because you said like my career path and as much as slowly as I built my career over 10 years, I would say, I actually came to the fringe most of these years. I mean, you know, almost um, 
So every year, the first year I came to the Fringe, I wasn't booked in any show. I just turned up and could and saw where I could perform. And then the next year I got booked in a burlesque show. And the next year I got booked as a fire performer. And then the next year I got booked. It got on and it kind of, the Fringe had a part of my career because every year I kind of, until I then managed to get booked before I actually got there and, and into a big show with contract and, you know, ended up performing in the big underbelly circus tent, which is great because now the natural progression is bringing my own show. And there was one thing that always sat with me in a weird way. All these years, like I've been coming to the fringe or working in the industry, I've never got to tell my own story. So it was always actually, you know, obviously I, I have a certain style. I have a certain look. I have certain skills and these ones are the selling, have been the selling points until not too long ago. But there were a couple of moments where I actually had a spoken sword swallowing act because I wanted to flip the script a little bit on the classic sideshow. It's always the man in the suit talking on the outside until he gets like, you know, and then the girl is going to come out in a bikini and she can swallow the sword. So I flipped the script on that a little bit and made this act where I talked for myself. <laughs> nobody was nobody really booked it I mean you know and I think this is always something I was like when I get my own, when I get to do my own show I want to tell my story out of my own perspective and not with my physical not necessarily physical performance but you know with actual speech and basically that's what I'm doing now and I think this is why I'm extra proud because I've been so many times in Edinburgh and I have people who know me in Edinburgh when I come back and now they can see me speak and actually find out what gets me go up in the morning and who I am and what happened to me and um yeah so basically that's my show it's an autobiographical um theater piece with um I quickly learned how to sing for it so I'm singing in the show so I'm joking it took ages um <laughs> uh, so I'm singing dancing and telling my story through spoken word, poetry, um, and a bit of, you know, tiny bit of burlesque and maybe a sword swallow. Incredible. Like, I, I think for people to hear <clears throat> that pathway for you through the festival and what that's had for your career is so important. It's that idea of making something. Like when you're an artist, it's like, you know, you said about oh, people didn't want to book your flipped idea of the sword swallower and things like that. But when you truly want to do this and you actually just want to make art, it's just getting to do it, right? I mean, the money would be great because we all need to survive and, you know, pay our bills and all of that. But I think it's so important that people hear that and just realise that those little steps that you don't think are maybe having the impact that you want actually are in the far bigger scheme of things. Yeah, I think it started, I got invited to do a TED talk in 2017. And I had to sit down the first time because they were like, okay, we, we, we help you to, to do it. You know, we, we give you all the skills and teach you how to talk, basically. But you have to go write it. And I was like, I've never written anything. Oh, God. So I kind of sat down in the British Library for like four weeks. Every day I went there, I was like, I write something down. And after a while, it just came out. And this, after the TED talk, people just came up to me and said your story is really inspiring I feel less alone or you know things along these lines and that really got me the motivation also I think the um you know took the insecurities around talking away it still took me a while to like kind of 
be confident enough to speak. But yeah, so I think this is what really keeps me going. And this is the same situation with my show. So I grew up in Germany and I was like the only black girl in my neighborhood. And I went to school in a school with a thousand pupils and there weren't, you know, I was the only black person in my school. And um, my, my show kind of starts at this beginning point. I got adopted by white parents and I grew up in this setting. I didn't really see, a, you know, a queer person, uh, sorry, a black person, let alone a queer black person until, I don't know, I met the first black person properly in my, I was 15 years old. And it took me almost 30 years to be in an environment where I see other queer black people. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't me that is weird. It was just society has treated me a certain way that made me feel like something wrong with me. And I kind of unpacked this all. I had lots of therapy. So it's not going to be like, you don't come into my show and you're going to be really depressed afterwards. But it is not, a, you know, even though it has music and poetry, it's not like a fun, easy, if you want to have a couple of beers, like it's not a comedy show. But... I really hope that people walk away inspired, inspired in terms of either to do better with their surroundings, inspired with a survivor story, or also kind of, you know, maybe feel less alone if they are people of color. I think that's, I mean, I think somebody coming up to you and saying, I feel less alone after your TED talk must have been so empowering for you and also but just like really as you say reassuring and just that to know that you've made a connection with someone like that is just really beautiful and really important um I feel like I keep talking so Lou if you weren't <laughs> See, no, no, no. I haven't done the podcast for a couple of times now I'm like ah eh, thank to me <laughs> no I, I'm just absorbing it all because I think um when I was reading the copy I've got the copy in front of me for your show and um you, you know that it opens with um talking about moving to London to live within a more diverse community which I you know you've just touched on and I'm just curious about the about the journey for you like what brought like when you got to London and, and that experience of of suddenly being part of a wider diaspora I suppose or um yeah what that was like for you because it's such a such an interesting and fascinating arc that you've had in your life and I was just wondering what, what that was like when you first arrived in London. So when I heard about London the first time when I was like 14, 15 years old, it was still, you know, the IRA was still dropping bombs in Harrods. This is how old I am. <laughs> anyway, so, so this was always the excuse for my, for my white adopt, adoptive mother that, because my parents were always like, oh, no, 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 you can't go to London because it's dangerous. And I, yet, like, you know, the more, the longer I live, my mom died already, unfortunately. The longer I live, I'm like, was that the only reason why she didn't let me go? Or did she knew that if I once I get I've gone to London, I'll never come back? <laughs> See, I, so I had a I had a boyfriend when we like around 18, 19 years old, and he's got a, um he's got into a film school in London. And this was the first time I went, I flew to London with Ryanair. They just started flying there. And I remember standing on sofa on the street crying because I had no idea that there was a sit a place in London that had so many black people and I mean African black people so or African descent black people or African Jamaican descent um I didn't know and it was like I felt like I could strip I mean this is a bit extreme but I, I felt like I could strip naked and pee on the street and nobody would notice me 
for the first time in my life, because I went to Amsterdam and there's a lot of Suriname and Southeast and an Asian community. And um, I obviously lived in Asia. So I've been around brown people a lot at this point, but I haven't been around black people because I grew up in Germany. People telling me it's dangerous in Africa. Everybody dies of malaria you, or you get shot. So don't go. Um, yeah, so this was the first experience. And I, I was 17 and I was like, I want to live here. And obviously it was so expensive at that time. Um, also, we still had German marks, I think. So it's just like, it feels like two lifetimes away. So I couldn't, obviously I couldn't afford it, but there was always in the back of my head, there was always like, when the time was right, I was gonna go and live in London. And so after my father's death, I had a bit of a, you know, I went through you know, quite difficult times and I spent some time in, in, a, in a clinic actually. And in this time I had like a real epiphany to kind of do what I really wanted to do. And that was performing as a performer um, in the arts and living in London. And there were two places to go at this point, New York or London. And clearly I was like, oh my God. But it's funny because now I'm like a part-time New Yorker. So I kind of got both of these cities in my belt, under my belt. But yeah, London was, you know, it was always, I think for about, you know, 20, like maybe, maybe 12 years, I was 12, 14 years. I was constantly having it in the back of my head ever since I went there. That's um, just that thing that you said about, you know, stripping naked and peeing in the street and nobody would notice you. I can't imagine what that must have felt like at 17 to experience that in that moment, to to have gone from what I can assume is always feeling like people were looking at you to yeah. then almost becoming invisible. Yeah, I had and never experienced anything like that. Because I was always standing out if I wanted or not, 24, you know, 24 day, 24 seven, really. And then I suppose, did, did you then get quite involved in the whole cabaret and burlesque scene in London then, if you were developing your career in that vein as things developed, with the, from the stripping to the sword swirling to the burlesque, were you just like living it up and having a glamorous cabaret life in London? I mean, mind you, I had 2,000 euros when I came to London and I, I think that <laughs> that basically lasted for like a month and a half. And, a month, I was yeah. like, and now what? <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. So I was like living in a flat, like my idea was to move to Brixton and because everybody black in Brixton, I had, I also had no idea. I thought that was the only place where most of the black people live. I didn't know they were everywhere, but um <laughs> So, um, so I lived in a Fletcher with like six people in Camberwell for like a minute. And then I was really, really lucky. And I had a beautiful arts warehouse spot offered to me. And it was 300 pounds back in the day, a month. Wow. <laughs> it had, oh, wow. I'm telling you, it had no windows. <laughs> God. <laughs> but I was like, in the first two weeks, I slept on the floor because I couldn't afford a mattress. I'm not oh. joking. And um, yeah, so I just got involved in anything. And again, because there was, a, there was quite a posh burlesque scene with, with, with girls who had lots of money for costumes which mm -hmm. me, and who had professional dance training, which I, you know, I had a bit of dance training, but not really. Um, so I, there was, there were, again, there was like, there were places I didn't have in. And there's, I'm, you know, being really honest, there are still places in London where I don't have in. So there's still places in the West End who would never book me as a burlesque performer because of the way I look. And I think 
throw at my outfits, I will still not be bullied. But it's fine. I make peace with it. I'm going to write in my book about it. <laughs> but yeah, I actually, I did everything. I, I called myself experimental dancer in the beginning. And I covered, I, I went to the pound shop and bought a roll of uh, cheap gaffer tape and gaffer tape my bits together. So nobody, you, know, you couldn't see, you couldn't see. <laughs> and uh, then went on stage dancing. And, you know, I mean, to be honest, at the end of the dance, I put a like a, I put a little sparkler in my pussy. That was my <laughs> I still have the video of it. Oh my god! Well, you know, girls got to eat. You got to get creative with these ideas. That uh, sold. <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> I wasn't the first one to do it. I found out later, and there's still, you know, there's always new new performers who come do the same thing. And I think there's this big fetish scene in London that always that that has a place within the cabaret industry. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. I saw that you've done uh, Torture Garden. Yes. And <laughs> Torture Garden, I think, you know, the first couple of gigs I had in London that were properly paid where Torture Garden was one of them. So they and I've been performing for Torture Garden over the years. I mean at least once a year, sometimes more often. I've been up to Edinburgh a couple of times. We've done Torture Garden in Japan and even though I'm not so connected to the fetish scene anymore now. I will always mm. I will always work for them because they do great production and, and they were there from the beginning for me. So that was cool. Yeah, I did yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a, there is definitely a real commercial market for for acts that involve putting things in parts of your body. That's really popular. That's just like that's like bleeding over into the mainstream now, I feel like. Yeah. It was, it was, it was still edgy. Like when I started, it was edgy. And I think what I really loved always, I mean, I, I did the fire just before it became really mainstream. I learned fire. And then um, obviously when everybody did fire, I learned the sword swallowing. So I always liked something with an edge that not everybody necessarily would touch. Mm -hmm. I think there is a real, there is a real adventurous reason behind it 50% and the other 50% are a bit like more tragic I'd say because I feel like as a as a black performer I always thought um just to kind of get bookings to be included it was incredibly white the cabaret scene in London was oh yeah I mean I can I remember before other black performers there was one drag you know one cabaret performer who was also a singer and um, you know one burlesque performer and then me in the very beginning. And, and I, I mean, it was just, yeah, I don't know. And I saw people around me starting up at the same time being, you know, given a hand and help and, you know, why don't you? And I, I remember there's a sword swallower who, uh, who was an active in London and, you know, she kind of had a bit of a repetition of a party girl or something like that and still would get booked into really high-end shows when I started out um, performing. And, you know, I was thinking, like, I have to stay sober because people were talking behind my back. I was doing drugs in the backstage when I eat, when I wasn't even doing them. And, you know, all these things, it's like I was not allowed a mistake. And I think this is like the, you know, the. It's like. A stereotyping and racism that is so ingrained in people, even people who, who you know, who maybe now do the work and who want to do anti-racist work. But, you know, it's like constantly swimming against the tide, like getting out of the situation I lived in 
back home in Germany, but then also being set into a situation where I could, where I felt like I could, um, you know, fulfill my dreams and my, you know, you know, my things, things that I wanted to, 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 to do and create in the arts. But then also I was still swimming against this tide like all, all the time. And I guess that's also what kept me going because I always feel like if you always have to prove people different, you get very good at what you're doing. Mm. So obviously I started, you know, I started having good success with my work. Yeah, it's, um, we've talked about this before in the podcast um, with other guests, um, where it's, if, if you, it's, the, it's the idea of, of anyone who's non-white having to work three times as hard just for, you know, 10% of what, the, the the white group who are doing like half the effort get and it's it's just it's a it's really fucked up and um and I think uh, yeah I I have back back in my history I uh, I used to be in the cabaret and burlesque scene a hundred years ago um, as a singer and performer as well um, not in London but in Scotland but I know a lot of people in London and it is a very it's a toxic environment at the best of times in many ways and. It's, it's always fascinating to me looking around rooms back in the day when I was in those rooms I'd be like wait a minute like aren't we in an art form that's meant to be edgy weird and like celebrate the outsider like what is going on here <laughs> like, yeah. there's no and the truth of it is that there's no aspect of any art form that's free from that because it's you know people who tend to rise to the top are the, the people that are already arrived with a certain amount of privilege um but yeah I hope you're taking them all down in your poems it's all in the poetry. <laughs> yes, people, buy my book. Buy my book. This is the moment. It's perfect. perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. Louise, right into it. So it's like, we're coming up to it. Yes. <laughs> Lydia, oh, you've got a book of poetry. <laughs> I got a book of poetry which has a very long, angry chapter about racism. So um, people can buy it either because they feel guilty and they want to do something good for a black person <laughs> and support me with money or, <laughs> or they can buy it because they love poetry. Well, no, I'm, so, so the, the book is um, basically, it's a little bit my, my pandemic baby because I set out to write my solo show in 2018 and got, uh, got an arts council grant yay, and in 2020. And Somehow I had a little bit like I, I sat I sat down and do my research to do my research and development and I realized that everything I wrote down for the show is actually poetry. So I decided to go down a bit the spoken word route. It's not like extreme because I also again I'm not coming from you know there are a couple of places in London the Roundhouse or BBC Young Poets and all these kind of things where you also have no in when you're over 21. Um, so I don't come from that scene. So it's not like the typical London spoken word you would imagine it would be so it's and also I don't do slam so it's not like crazy loads of words but um it's a it's a it's a mix between pen to paper and spoken uh spoken spoken word stuff and um yeah so I wrote everything down for the show and I realized all of it was poetry and then we got locked away and I found this amazing app on a new social app clubhouse which I joined it's a audio app and I met loads of poets on there and people were like meeting up in rooms and reading poetry to each other and I was like oh okay 
you know, I've been in this room five times now, five times now, I can't come back with, with the same poetry. And then we started meeting up in other rooms and, you know, giving each other prompts and writing. I don't know, and a year later, I had a book. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I thought, oh, well, this is amazing. I really would love to publish a poetry collection, especially because I've been really, yeah, I've been really working like really like every day on, on, on the collection for like a year almost. And I sent it out to some publishers and, you know, one of them said yes, which was, you know, I was quite surprised because I thought it will take me at least two years to find a publisher. But I was at the right moment with the right work at the right time, at the right crossing. <laughs> and um, I found a publisher who's lovely, Polari Press. It's a new queer publisher based in London. And um, book is out on 15th September. 15th of September. I was about to drop the date. I was like, 15th of September, people get your orders <laughs> in. <laughs> And I mean, it's no, it's actual title, so everybody knows exactly what they're looking for. The Rising <laughs> of the Black Sheep. The Rising of the Black Sheep. And it's The Rising of the Black Sheep that was the working title of my show. And out of, you know, working on the show, the Black Sheep has risen. So the Black Sheep is the show and The Rising is the book. And um, yeah, it's, it's as I said, it's a, it's a lovely mix. It's, it's got some really really beautiful, uh, vulnerable work about my um, parents and uh, about the black queer love and a lot of really angry social justice poetry. Sounds like my kind of book. It's, it's buy beautiful. It, buy it. <laughs> I will be buying it, don't worry. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And oh. I take it, um, it's, uh, so... This hopefully will not be the last. Then this is this is the this is the uh, career path now. This is the new chapter for you, um, is the writing. So hopefully this will be the first of many many poetry books. Yeah, and maybe more. I have, I have a couple of books idea, books in me. Um, you know, any publisher who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> gotta work it, girl. Gotta work that hustle. Gotta get, yeah, like, I can't. I can't. Like, I mean, I would really love to write down my my story. Like after doing the show. That's like, it feels like the natural progression, natural progression. Sorry, I've been to the dentist this morning and my, my, my cheek's still numb. Um, it's a natural progression to write a book, an autobiography about it. But then I have some other ideas as well that I really, you know, that have nothing to do. I mean, I don't always have to talk about my life. Um, and um, yeah, so I can see myself retiring to the countryside, maybe Scotland. Come, just go, yes, please. It's yes, just please. Cold. I know. Not well. Not at the moment. I mean, I'm in Canada, so I can't say anything. But oh. you know, I mean, oh, it's been uh, it's been brutally warm at the moment, but not as brutally warm as it's been down south in London. Um, mm. Oh yeah. I think I think the highest we hit this week was thirty. That's high that was, for Scotland. It's very high for Scotland. We're not built for it. We're just not built for it at all. Oh. It was like we needed to like. Just batten down the hatches, close the curtains, and hide. It was. <laughs> no, I get it. That's too warm. That's far too warm. Um. So, the show, we should probably like drop in all the details for the show. Um. I actually. I mean, we're, not done, we're, we're not done chatting yet, but like, like we are talking about the show, so it feels like we should make sure everybody knows how they can see it. 
actually as well, if Livia, if you're cool with it, it would be great if you could give us like a couple of taglines, a few sentences on what people could expect in the show. That would be amazing. And then details, which obviously we'll put in the show notes of the episode as well. Um, and when we put everything out on social media, we'll be doing all that as well. Yeah, so, I mean, the show is like an autobiographical story, my story, about a woman finding love. And I always say it this way, because a way through loss and also like through trying to dismantle and uh, outlive institutional racism and also finding actual love, physical uh, attention and long-term relationship, I think this is you know, it's all, it's all finding love and it's part of also starting to, you know, love yourself. So it's like, it's actually, it's, it's a show about love, to be very honest. Um, I just jam packed it with a lot of difficult themes <laughs> and a lot of like, you know, a lot of like all the things that I've unpacked in my life, I packed them into the show, but it has singing, dancing and roller skating as well. So yeah. I mean, what more could people want? <laughs> I'll be really honest. I put the roller skating in it because I thought I need to give them a moment where everybody can just party. <laughs> we need and to, it uh... worked. It worked. <laughs> it's, it's a roller skate dem- demo. We all have signs, Black Lives Matter signs, and roll around. I roll around on roller skates. I mean, audience is happy to, you know, they can bring some roller skates if they want. I'm not sure if there's time for interactive, but maybe afterwards. But yeah, there is a moment where, you know, where, where everything breaks and we just have a little party. And yeah, so I, I guess that's all I can say. <laughs> I love that you say that the show is about, I love that you say, I love that you say that the show is about love because actually I think that if we all take a little moment to love each other a little bit more and love ourselves yeah. a little bit more, just in general in society, we could start to heal some of, the wounds that are there yeah. it's not going to take away from anything but if we could all just take a little moment and love each other just a little bit more yeah so yeah I, I really I love that oh, it's good <laughs> yeah it seems like when I, maybe because I'm just so old <laughs> I just say because when I was younger I feel like I'm gonna have to talking. stop you there, Livia. Livia, I'm gonna have to stop you because I'm like everybody's listening to this and like she's so old. What you will see this human being when we put <laughs> it stunning for a start. Please stop. <laughs> no, no, I know, but it feels like it feels a long time ago that people were, I think, more often in my surroundings at least talking about love in a way that had um, longing in it. I feel our society at the moment, everybody is just absolutely terrified by love. And love kind of symbolizes hurt immediately because who, who will love must get hurt. And I, I really thought when, you know, this is a fairly new twist when I reworked the show that I wanted to find an overall theme. And I really looked at, you know, at the specific parts in it. And basically it is, I realize it's just about finding love and I think nobody talks about it. And, you know, we all kind of need love to survive. And it might sound, you know, for people a little bit corny, but this is what I'm looking for in my life. I lost my parents, I lost my adoptive parents. I've been alone for a really long time. I've done great things, but you know, after all, 
still when I come home now, I'm, I've got two lovely cats, but I feel like I cannot share this with a partner at this point. And um, it is really because my story is not finished. And I will continue on the moment, the moment I walk out of the show, I continue my life and my life is the show in an evolving way. And what I really do is I look for love and I look to be treated with more love. And um, I think I, if people can walk away and kind of take this as an inspiration to do better with whatever they want, even if it's not, even if it's not for somebody else, but it's for themselves, then my job is already done. That's so gorgeous. Um, I love that you use, you, there's a quote that you've used about love from Bell Hooks, that really gorgeous Bell Hooks quote that the one person who will never leave us, whom we'll never lose is ourselves. Learning to love our female selves is where our search for love must begin. That's so beautiful. And it sounds like that is a really well chosen quote for what you're talking about in terms of like offering your poetry to the world and where it is rooted. Um, and I love the idea of like, when you've gone through trauma, and there's things that that you know terrible things that have required survival or the need to overcome love is such a, a this does sound corny but I do believe it like it's such a powerful healing tool as Elaine has already touched upon but loving yourself in the face of a lot of that is such a rebellious and amazing act because it's like if I love myself you can't that you've you've not hurt me forever it's not like loving myself is the ultimate act of overcoming I think mm. that's really gorgeous um I love that bell hooks quote mm, yeah and I love everything you're saying oh thank you <laughs> and we should just say so for everybody who's listening black sheep is on at the assembly rooms powder room it's from the 4th to the 27th um <laughs> and the days off are the 14th and the 15th from what I can see <laughs> on the Fringe website, on edfringe.com. And for everybody who wants to come on the 16th, yeah, just be gentle because I have a dentist appointment on the 16th in the morning. <laughs> You're joking. You're having to have a dentist appointment and then do a show? I'm going to go to London. That's why I took more, more days off. Yeah, I have to go to London and then go to dentist and then come back. It's just worked out this way. It has to be done. It's show best. Show must go on. That's show the show yeah. 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 <laughs> so everybody be very nice they can mm -hmm. bring treats yeah good idea yeah <laughs> yep 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 um okay great so it's <laughs> from the 4th to the 27th but not the 14th and 15th of august at the assembly rooms powder room uh, assembly rooms and it is one hour and it is 9 p.m um, and we will link all the information, we'll link the um, where you can get tickets, we'll put all the info in the show notes for everybody to be able to find you and come and see you. Also, Assembly Rooms, great venue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I was I was happy when, when they got back to me and were like, we want your show. I was like, oh, really? Assembly? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have to start. I said the bar high. As you should. Yeah. You should. Boom. Um, you deserve nothing but the best. Exactly. Um, right in there at assembly rooms. Done, done. That's it. <laughs> um, so what is next for you? I know you've talked about writing possibly an autobiography, but we'll, like, 
do you hope that the Black Sheep has a further life and you go on some more festival tours, maybe hopefully like a run somewhere? Putting that yeah. out to the universe, that'd be great. I have a short run in London last week of September at Jackson's Lane. And then I go into a short national tour. So I have a couple of dates. I think it's, I don't know the dates, but it's uh, Cambridge Junction, Colchester Arts, um I go to Bridgeport Art Centre in Dorset which I literally I didn't I had to look at the map I was like Dorset but apparently they like art down there and um oh yeah and I do another one another gig in Waterman's it's, it's in West London and hopefully so I really would like to obviously the poetry collection is going to come out but I would like to do I mean you know depending on how the fringe goes uh, look at the tour, like maybe a little bigger tour, a little bigger tour, <laughs> a very big tour in 2023, <laughs> which hopefully goes international as well. So I've been in Adelaide for the Fringe. I, I'm eyeing, I'm eyeing with with the Adelaide Fringe. I would love to take it to the US, and um, and I would like to publish also the script of the show. I, that's great I was going to ask if it's available because I'm sure there'll be lots of people who leave the show and will um want to reread yeah want to find out if they get, I suppose they can get the book on the 15th they can get the book and um, I'm going to make sure they get everybody gets a flyer during the show and they know where to order the book but I think the script I'm holding off on it a little bit because I want to tour I, I would like to get a big tour done with Black Sheep and then publish the script so people can go off and you know do their own thing with it in other countries <laughs> but right now it's like you know it's a little bit my my baby it's not quite born yet it's your baby yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you gotta take care of it first yeah you're like the world doesn't get this quite yet till I've got it in control yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely um, I know that we didn't actually say anything but I'm wondering if you could read us some of your poetry like oh I, I can, I can. Oh, she's so ready. Yes, I, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so not ready. <laughs> no, no, no. I've got, um, I've got my script on my on my computer, and it happens. Just as we, we've been talking, I think it would be amazing for people just to hear a little bit. Um, yeah, of course. Um, I always love to share, love to share my poetry. So there is a poem at the end of the show, and this is the poem that I uh, might or might not swallow a sword to. And I feel like sharing that one today, actually. I just, I'm really, one second, I just need to, I was a bit. Once again, what else could people want from an Edinburgh Festival show? Like, exactly, yeah. And also, you know, it's the- Performance. It's, it's, the, it's the actual suspense. Will I swallow the sword or will I not? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Cutthroat. Cutthroat, the 2020 report of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities detected no institutional racism in Britain. Inequality can't be linked to social class, cutthroat. Discrimination detector unavailable, cutthroat. We don't live in a post-racial society, cutthroat. Keep calm, carry on. Keep watching TV, protest against murders outside of your country. I can't breathe. There is nothing to see here. Breathing is overrated. Ethnic minorities outperforming their white pairs, cutthroat. 
still forced to take the offered minority scholarships cut throat. Sponsored oppressed skin color produces a main income cut throat. Picked up as a pick me, picking away on the soft colored skin cut throat. Expected to be the cleaner, if not literally, then metaphorically cut throat. Uphold the system perpetuating our own oppression cut throat. There is no pride in a label that was never fit for human definition. Cut throat. You can't talk, but not too loud. You can play, but you can't win. You can live, but don't live big. You can be, but don't take up space. Let me murder your expectation. Question pre-justice, deconstruct the social ranking system, cut throat, cutting up society. My words become swords and this one is hard to swallow, but you can, because I could just be careful it doesn't cut your throat. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. That was really beautiful. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, I find, um, so we have this idea that racism only ever happens in America. And I think throughout the experience of writing and performing the show, I, I realized that, you know, it's really important that we start cleaning up in front of our own doorsteps. And there's a, there's a sequence of poems that I wrote and obviously this one was, um, actually I wrote this in the time, I rewrote this in the time when we had the, was it the Euro final where, uh, where the three black footballers kind of missed the penalties. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I performed it, <laughs> dedicated it to actually to the football players as well. Um, and that time before when, when the race report came out, I just got really, I felt this real, you know, hurt around that, I, you know, we always been told it's it's bad over there, it's bad over there, it's bad over there, but we don't have any problems. So I ended, I actually changed the whole ending of my show because I wanted to bring it back home so that we, you know, we leave the situation knowing that is us and that we don't do better for other people to live better. That it's like we're working on ourselves and our own situation. And um, so that's, so what, it's actually one of my favorite poems. It's, it's brilliant and yeah. powerful and <clears throat> thought-provoking and hopefully for some people challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah, just fabulous. Um, Livia, before we finish up, we like to ask our guests a question. Oh, okay. So um, we are called Persistent and Nasty from two political things so the persistent is Elizabeth Warren nevertheless she persisted and um, then the second one is the previous president of the United States Colin Hillary Clinton <clears throat> a nasty woman for daring to give him actual facts and then there was a twitter thread of all these incredible human beings who were like well if she's nasty for knowing her information I'm a surgeon I'm a nasty woman blah 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 um, so we want we love to reclaim words like nasty and bitch and moany things that are used against many of us to keep us in our little boxes so the patriarchy keeps doing its thing um, so we like to reclaim so 
we are going to ask you the question, which is, what does the term phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? Um, persistent and nasty. It's like, really, if I think about my life, this is probably what I'm, what I am. It's like, I was persistent. Like you cannot get rid of me and my energy, my strong female queer energy and uh, nasty. I mean, you know, you, for me, nasty. And I think it's really interesting because I come out of the stripper concept context and it's like, we have nasty in, you know, it could be a compliment, but it could also, again, be used against, like, it's nasty, what strippers do, sex workers do. So I feel like persistent and nasty is just really, is like describing, like, powerful female energy to me. Like, this is what I, what I feel when I hear, hear persistent and nasty. Like, this is what I want to be every day. I'm doing good. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. Oh, I got I got like a little like full body shiver there. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you're like the little pep talk in the mirror. It's not like you look beautiful. No, you're like persistent and nasty. Yeah, you're nasty. Going. You're persistent and nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Oh, that's great. That's going to be great joy. What a brilliant response. Thank you, Livia. Yes, thank you so much. Um, and again, for everybody listening, uh, Olivia's show is at the Assembly Rooms from the 4th to the 27th of August, but not the 14th and 15th, um, because Livia's having a dentist appointment. So if you're coming on the 16th, come with treats. Um, yeah. In fact, come with treats every time you go to see her, because, you know, amazing. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant, so just saying. So no ice cream <laughs> and no lattes. Anything else. Dark chocolate and oatmeal lattes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect, right? Perfect. Um Livia, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure and a joy um, to meet you and hear your story and I cannot wait to come and see the show yes thank me too you. very excited so about much. seeing it thank <laughs> you so much yeah I'm I'm excited and it was so much fun to speak to you thank you thank you very much so for everybody else you can follow Livia on a uh, social media and it's a uh, Livia quote Joe Allure um and we will put it all in the show notes of today's episode so that you've got all of those and uh, get your tickets for the show and we're going to do our sign off so until next time lovely listeners stay nasty, nasty.